Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead. I'm Len. I'm your host for this week, joined by our good friend, Tap Taps Ian Boudreau. Hello, everybody. Or, or should I say Twitter user Ian Boudreau as your Twitter <laughs> user Ian Boudreau yeah. cited by who? Brutal. What was Brutal. Who's, who cited you as as Twitter user? Uh, this is a, a story that was on <laughs> Attack of the Fanboy. Oh, OK. Gotcha. Resident Evil 4. There you go. And uh, we're joined once again by UNC Chapel Hill's Dr. Brett Devereaux. Uh, great to be here. Also, NC State's Brett Devereaux at the moment. NC State. Okay. When uh, mm-hmm. when did when did you make this the uh, move over? Uh, I just I'm teaching for NC State this semester. I mean, this is the joy gotcha. of of early career academic is that you're. Like like the medieval journeymen of old, you're like a vagabond that drifts from <laughs> one institution to the next. Um, sell sword. Yes. There you go. Sell, sell historian. There we go. There we sell go. historian, yeah. Brett Devereaux. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're talking about the Great War Western Front, which is an RTS that just came out a little bit ago about World War One. And uh, Brett, this is really kind of in your wheelhouse, right? Because you're more specifically a military historian, right? Yep. And we, we've had you on to talk about a lot of topics that aren't like directly tied to military history. But this one is. Um, and you have written about World War One over on uh, your your blog, a collection of unmitigated pedantry. So I'm curious when you first fired this game up, um, was there anything that struck you as like particularly authentic or inauthentic right away about their depiction of World War One? So, uh, yeah, there's, so there were a few things I really liked. Um, I think I, you know, uh, I had played the I had played the like the training missions or whatever when they had that open demo week back during the what was it the Steam Next Fest or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, being the kind of person I am, when I finally got it and fired it up for real, I, I skipped the tutorial and, uh, I had maybe forgotten a few things. So I promptly made like a <laughs> giant mess of my first battle with like mistimed, uh, artillery strikes and, you know, it takes one machine gun nest to utterly ruin your day if you mess up your artillery. And I was like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think it is. It would be World War One if you didn't make a giant mess of your first battle. That should be like a requirement. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think they the fragility of infantry out in the open um, really comes through. If you make a mistake, you can lose a lot of guys very fast. And there's not much you can do about it because they don't move that fast. So if you make a mistake and they get caught in a bad spot, even if you recognize it and click for them to run, I mean, they're just going to get shot. Um, and so um, the difficulty of, of mounting attacks, there were, um, there were at least a few times where I think the, the AI managed to pull off counterattacks right as I was getting settled to unseat me and push me back. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's how that goes. Um, and just generally the way the game encourages you to use and think about artillery primarily as a means of suppressing enemy defenses so that you can cross the open terrain and get in with bayonets, shovels, and grenades. Um, that is how the artillery was used in, in World War I. Um, every, you know, generals would often 
suggest that they were going to um, use so much artillery that all the infantry would need to do is walk forward and seize the trench. But in practice, what we get is what's referred to as the race to the parapet, um, where at the opening of, of an attack, the attacker's artillery barrages the enemy. And then, you know, the defender has to go into their dugouts, has to hide from the artillery barrage. And then as the barrage lifts, the attacker's guys come out of their trenches and the defenders rush to their firing positions. First guy to the lip of the trench wins. Uh, because if the attackers get to your trench and attack down at you, you're screwed. And if the defenders get up to the firing position with machine guns while the attackers are still crossing the open field, they're screwed. And so this was the, the race to the parapet. It captures that pretty well. Yeah, yeah. There is like this like super precision timing you have to hit if you want to have a really successful push where it's like my guys are going to be stepping on the edge of the trench right as my suppression barrage ends. Like that's that's like the perfect, you know, way way to, to lay things out, which took a while for me to actually figure that out. I mean, early on, my strategy was just to use the the heavier shells like the the um, focus bombardment to just empty out all the enemy trenches. And then I would just like walk across no man's land and take it, um, which becomes no longer possible once the upgraded trenches come into play, because especially like the level three trenches, you can throw shells at them forever and you're not going to like kill every guy in there. Um, or if you do, you've spent so much supply that you're you're screwed for the rest of the turn, which we'll talk about a little bit when we get to the campaign map. Um, right, right. Infantry is cheap. <laughs> shells are expensive, which yeah. um, welcome to World War One, everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and. Um, and right, that is the temptation. And, and that was I mean, you say, as you say, it, it, it took a few tries to, to figure out how to do it. I mean, the British and the French agree. Um, it takes a, it takes a few tries. <laughs> uh, Ian, I feel like you and I came to sort of the same conclusion because we both reviewed it. And this is sort of a tension that I think we'll dig into more throughout the episode. But like the idea that I, I don't know if you can make like a nine out of 10 or even like an eight out of 10 World War One RTS that feels authentic because the more you make it feel like World War One, the kind of the more of a drag it is. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what um, I wound up trying to figure out, and I'm still trying to trying to unknot this this tension. Like, what? Okay, I've got these problems with the game. Is I'm not having a really very good time. Um, which of these problems are problems with the game, uh, and which are which of these are just things I don't like about World War One? <laughs> Like the the practice of it, it's it's a drag. So, um, I don't think anyone in World War One enjoyed World War One either. So exactly you're right. It, so, there. well, I, that's <laughs> it. Like, and so I don't, like any time that I have tried to kind of go over my mind, like what should be different about this. Like, it, it inevitably means you know making a game that's a little more entertaining, and more fun, but but damaging the uh, authenticity that they've built into it, which you know is. I'd say, I mean, when I heard that they were making a World War One RTS, I was like, boy, that's, I mean, if anybody's going to do it, Petroglyph's probably the, the, the folks to, to take this on, but is that a, is that a good idea? Yeah. Um, 
it, it's interesting because I've always said we don't have enough World War One games. And now yeah. I find myself being like, oh, OK, well, that maybe that's why. <laughs> um, Definitely the dog that caught the mail truck on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like I enjoy it. I do enjoy it. But like, especially the campaign and the way that it it is like they've designed it so that the front lines don't move very often. And like you need to secure multiple decisive tactical victories to take like one hex on this map. And right. you could do that and you could like see all oh, my wars. War supports going up and their war supports going down or national will, I think they call it. And then they attack some poorly defended part of your line and it goes right back to where it was at the start of the turn. And, you know, it's uh, it really it is like a grinding war of inches, at least for the first. Couple years or so uh, until you start unlocking some like better breakthrough type technologies. That's yeah, that, that was definitely my experience with it, too. It, it, and so and I, I st- like I said, I still don't have good answers for, you know, if I when I've struggled to enjoy, you know, aspects of the game, whether it's the RTS battles or the campaign, what would I change? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure, because I do think that they've demonstrated a rather admirable commitment to recreating the war as it actually was and kind of getting across what it meant like you say the, this war of inches and the fact that it was um a meat grinder that really kind of <laughs> just uh churning through uh m- you know millions of lives and uh ultimately coming down to how much national will existed on both sides what's wild is that even within that space they're actually doing quite a lot of things to make these battles maybe more decisive than they were historically like i i I did start to notice the pattern of where i think to me at least they seem to kind of deviate from the factors in the actual battles and and they tend to systematically favor the attacker um so for instance uh, one of the ones that struck me really immediately is that troops in a trench fire both ways um, so, mm-hmm. uh, when you're the attacker and you take an enemy trench, you can immediately use that position to protect itself because it will fire backwards. Your, your guys can fire. But actual World War I trenches were designed with firing steps that only faced one way, and the rear lip of the trench was higher than the front lip of the trench so that you could not do that. You would need to spend a couple hours rebuilding the trench to face the other direction. Um, which you might end up doing in a battle, but um, but they were designed so that you couldn't want that they were hard to take but easy to retake. Um, likewise, um, y- you can be a lot more precise with your artillery work than an actual World War One commander could be, because it's the conceit of a real time strategy game, right? You have a bird's eye view; you can see where all of your units are all the time. And you can instantly order your artillery to begin firing in support of these troops. Whereas, um, you know, even as late as, as 1917, what, what you're working with are barrages that are on timers. And so it's like, okay, the, the artillery is going to move the barrage forward by this many feet every 15 minutes. 
and the infantry just needs to keep up. Um, and if you're really, really lucky, um, you will have enough air superiority to have spotters in planes who, if they can see that the infantry and the barrage are desyncing, can fly back to the artillery, write a message on a piece of paper and drop it <laughs> um, to tell the artillery to correct, correct their fire. Um, or you could have, you see, you see that they have the barrage balloons, the spotting balloons. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. They're not actually barrage balloons, they're spotting balloons. Um, barrage balloons are World War II. Um, the spotting balloons, you could do that. Um, and then that guy has like a telephone and he is calling down, but he's looking through binoculars at guys that are like two miles away. <laughs> um, looking at, 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 right, a bunch of guys in, in, in light blue khaki and field gray trying to kill each other <laughs> in the mist, right? Like he can't necessarily tell what unit is where. And so like all of those distortions, ironically, like they're fudging it to make it a little bit easier to uh, like accomplish something <laughs> in these battles. <laughs> and it's still, yeah. it's hard to accomplish something in these battles until you get re- until you get the much better offensive technology, until you have rolling barrages, smoke, gas, tanks, etc. Um, and I, I mean, I will say I found myself once I figured things out I got pretty good, even with 1914, 1915 technology, in getting sweeps regularly. Um, I, th- I, I thought it, it got a little too easy. Maybe I need to ratchet up the difficulty from the default. But, um, but you're going to experience some degree of quagmire, and that's probably good. But li- like you said, I think this game won't be for everybody. I think some people will really dig the authenticity, and some people will be put off by the authenticity. Yeah, I think maybe I'm bad at this game <laughs> to some degree. I think a lot of it is that I, I when I play an RTS, I don't tend to like to throw units away, um, which is why my whole 1914 was basically just shelling trenches into rubble and then taking them uncontested and then running out of supplies and getting pushed back by my enemy who had more supplies um on the campaign uh whereas yeah maybe what i need to be doing is being a little bit you know not as careless as a new player would be but a little bit more careless maybe with my infantry (laughs) where you know especially like the central powers they have those conscript units that are like low-key really good uh because you don't really want to use them to defend but if they're the first guys that get to the enemy trench and they're just kind of there to absorb (laughs) the first like wave of rifle fire so that your better troops behind them don't get shot. Like that's, it's kind of a, an effective strategy. Uh, I, I started to discover. Yeah. Um, Which again, like amazingly (laughs) for an RTS, I feel like that's, it's remarkable that they managed to get this kind of like, like to recreate that with game mechanics, I think is really impressive. Yeah. As an aside, like the the trick I found myself falling into is pick one of the enemy control positions that's on the edge of the map, punch through there, and mm-hmm. then take advantage yeah. of the fact that trenches can fire forwards and backwards, but not effectively to the sides, to roll the enemy flank by flank, and you're just looking to force a series of melee engagements. So you just find whatever part of their trench network is most exposed. You take that, and then you funnel everybody through that trench to pull them into one melee fight after another. 
um, it's especially with elite units supporting with heavy artillery, you can actually overwhelm a trench network that way, perhaps a little easier than you should be able to. Uh, yeah, and I mean, the fact that you can reinforce from those control points that you take over to right. really helps that. Yeah. I think the other thing that, that helps out is, ironically, the fact that light artillery suppression fire does basically no damage, which means that you can be a lot more potentially cavalier about using it to, to to fire danger close to support your own attacks whereas obviously like in the real world light artillery suppression fire like that would do almost no damage to the defender in the trench but it would butcher all of the attackers right i mean those are yeah nobody standing around would be up yeah <laughs> yeah those are those are bursting shrapnel shells so those guys are all yeah. dead um and so like i you know this was this was why the barrage had to lift there was an asymmetry here where the attacker moving across the open is extremely vulnerable to artillery fire, whereas the defender um, in the trenches isn't. Um, firing your artillery defensively with early game tech is like way less effective than it should be. Um, you should just be, you know, the attacker in the attack should just kind of accept however many units of heavy and light artillery the enemy has deployed. I'm just going to lose that many infantry units the moment I step out of my trench because every barrage should just instantly murder whatever unit it's fired at. Um, that's sort of the reality of trying to attack across no man's land. So again, they're sort of, they're fudging to make the battlefield a little more dynamic, but you know, I still think this is certainly the most authentic World War I game I've seen. <laughs> yeah, and there's like little stuff like um, you know, you were talking about unit movements earlier, but they, it's there's even like if they're out in the open and they're charging towards where you can see that the enemy has placed a reticle for an artillery barrage and you tell them like to stop or you tell them to divert, there's a little bit of lag. And like from a gameplay mm -hmm. standpoint, it feels really bad, but I'm like, oh, but I can see why they did that, though. That feels really bad, but I can see why they did that because you can't just yeah like dodge artillery. You can't just micro a company around artillery, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. which yeah would be, be kind of ridiculous, especially and, uh, not when your communications technology here is generally still <laughs> telegraph lines, right? Um, or or a, a very loud whistle, right? Yes, <laughs> which they they have the whistle, um, yeah. The, yeah. the attack signaling whistle. No, I mean this is one of the things where. It's also that this is World War One. Um, radio is new, like really new and expensive, and radio units are heavy, and you don't usually send them forward with the infantry. So, like infantry attacks, literally, you have like specialists who, as your infantry is going forward, their job is to string communications wire across no man's land, <laughs> so that command can talk to the guys in the front and. Of course, all you need is like one shell to go off, you know, in in sighting distance of that wire. It's going to cut the wire, and now nobody can talk to anybody, right? Because this is again, this is World War One. Like you don't have radios. Um, well, ra radios are a thing for communicating from one army to another army in World War One, for the most part. <laughs> well, they also set like when you send a like a an air squadron off on a mission. 
they're just off on that mission because it's not like they had you know radios in the yeah you cannot you cannot communicate with them (laughs) it's like when they're out of ammo or out of fuel they will come back or they die like those are the three (laughs) three ways that they won't yeah they won't be back (laughs) yeah uh three ways that an air mission can end yeah um which like adds some interesting tension to the air war eventually um I felt like some of the aircraft were a little overpowered. Um, I'm curious, especially Brad, if you could speak to like the efficacy of using aircraft against infantry formations in World War One, because it seems like it's a little too easy to like kill an entire regiment with uh, their their bomber units. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it. it- the impact of aircraft is a little wild. Uh, so the first thing is that a lot of these aircraft don't fly that high in World War One, which means, I mean, early in the war, they're literally in danger. Like, all you need to do is just dig in the back of your machine gun so it can point up, um, and you can shoot these planes down. Um, as the war goes on, the flight ceilings get a little higher, and you start to need specialized weapons to shoot them down, but they're, they're never safe. Um, you know, it, it, the, the guys on the ground can definitely retaliate against your, your planes. And, you know, they have like the bombers come in and you'll get like one bomber will come in and it'll just obliterate two of your machine gun nests or an infantry unit. And then just like meander off if you don't have any way to, to shoot it down. And, um, I mean, the bombers in this period just don't carry those kinds of bomb loads. Um, they're really quite light and quite dinky and quite small. Um, these are not World War II heavy bombers that can turn the side of a field into rubble. Um, you know, before 1917, really, like when you say bomber, what you mean is the guy in an artillery spotting plane is is lugging grenades out the side of his plane. Um <coughs> Literally, in, in, in some cases, I mean, like, you're talking about, like, the bombs they're dropping, you literally see the guy, like, the guy is the, the backseat gunner artillery spotter is, like, physically dropping with his hands the bombs that the bombers are delivering. Uh, you do get specialist bombers late in the war, but they come late. Um, their range is short. Their bomb loads are pathetically small. Um, and so, yeah, there's a level of effectiveness for the bombers that's a little bit that's a little bit extreme. I mean, then there's also the fact that like, you don't have 45% of your tanks break down before they cross the front line of your own trenches. So <laughs> there's a lot of, yeah. of world war, you know, very embryonic world war one technology that works a lot better in a game than it did in world war one, um, you know, throughout. And I think some of that has to do with, like, if you were a player, you'd be extraordinarily frustrated if you burned those supply points, bringing in those big expensive tanks, and they all just, like, broke down in the back part of the map. That would be frustrating. Um, But, like, yeah, and the British were really frustrated when that happened at Cambrai. They were pissed. Um, But it happened. Yeah, yeah, tanks are also an interesting... Imagine this guy with a glorious mustache just kicking the road wheels on a big old tank that wouldn't go anywhere. Wouldn't go anywhere yet. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the the tanks are also interesting because they're... 
They're very vulnerable by themselves. Like if you don't send them with infantry, they just get like blown up by grenades, especially like the kind of dinky, smaller early war tanks, which I thought at first seemed weird. But then I actually did some reading on it and uh, it seems like sending in like tanks that got detached from their infantry support were just getting killed like that, like all the time in World War One. <laughs> Um, and, and and World War Two and yeah, tanks yeah. alone are super vulnerable. Um, yeah, I mean the issue here is the guys like throw grenades at them, which no. What you would do is these tanks have terrible visibility, um, as modern tanks mostly do too. Um, but these tanks definitely terrible visibility. Um, the battlefield is confusing. So if your tank is alone from infantry, you know what the enemy can sneak a few guys out of their trench as you approach with grenades or other explosives stick a grenade on the track and that'll blow the track off now you can't move um put a grenade through the side of the tank into one of the you know gun ports or something like that through one of the hatches um for instance or a bundle of grenades physically beneath the tank might break the 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 underside of it and kill everybody and it is very vulnerable in that sense um but the biggest threat that tanks faced in the game is like infantry with grenades. The biggest threat that tanks faced in the actual battlefield was direct fire light artillery. Um, mm. That uh, these tanks are crazy slow. Um, I, of course, I don't have it in front of me, but as I recall, like the Renault FT uh, 17, which is a uh, pretty iconic tank. Uh, the French light tank in the war, probably the best tank in the war. It moves at a not particularly brisk walk. Um, it's like four and a <laughs> half, five miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so the fact is, like, if your tanks got spotted on the approach, they're an important target, and your opponent has, um, you know, direct fire light artillery. Uh, your your tank is armored to resist machine gun fire, not an artillery shell. So they're just going to pop you, and that's that. Um, ironically, like the allies to shield their tanks would use smoke. Like that's what you deployed the smoke for was to to prevent enemy artillery from spotting the approach of your tanks. Um, wow! And so you would lay smoke to protect the tanks so that the tanks could get close enough, and then the tanks would flatten the barbed wire, um, clearing the paths, and your infantry could then follow them in. Um, and yeah, they offer fire support to you know hit enemy pillboxes and strong points but um but mostly what they're doing you hope is physically like the infantry is literally in a physical pack behind the tank so the machine gun fire hits the tank and the tank goes over the barbed wire and so that presses it down so the infantry can get over the wire and then when you reach the enemy trench the infantry go in again with bayonets and and really grenades lots and lots of grenades um so grenades are a, a trench clearing weapon, um, which you get your like elite raider infantry actually do this. That eventually, like they just clear a trench by just grenading everybody in it. And I'm yeah, like, the Gurkhas do that too. I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I've been like, all of the infantry should work that way. Um, your sort of elite infantry should just be better at it. But yeah, uh, you know, you need unit diversity, I guess. Yeah, you mentioned well, the uh, the barbed wire. I thought, uh, and yes, like you, you, like I found that it, that's the best way to clear a barbed wire line is to drive a tank over it. But um, in my own experience with tracked vehicles, concertina wire is the biggest pain in the neck. Um, it'll <laughs> um, it'll 
uh, foul. Like, I don't know if it's just the, the, the difference in the size of the tracks, the gauge, I guess. But uh, nothing in my own army experience brought more like tracked vehicles that I was around or in to a screeching halt than accidentally getting fouled up in concertina wire. Uh, and that just meant like four hours of the crew getting out and trying to snip the little um, all, all the wire that had gotten fouled up in the um, sprockets and road wheels out of well, the tank. Well, yeah, the good it's news, a, it's the a good huge news bummer. is that your escorting infantry are all carrying wire cutters. Right. Uh, yep. Yeah, and yep. you're also thinking you're thinking about attacks, right? Where like if you send out 200 tanks and 50% of them get fouled up on the wire and another 25% of them get blown up by artillery, um you know, you've put what 50 tanks in the enemy line. This is a great success. Um well done, <laughs> right? Um you probably overran their their initial trenches and now you're sending forward more forces to exploit. Um, right. I mean, this is the, the sort of brutal arithmetic of, of World War One, where, um, you know, we attacked, we sustained 50% casualties, but we overran their trenches. So we're going to call that a win. And chances are they also sustained horrific casualties. That's one thing I really like that the game does capture is that the defender doesn't necessarily take fewer casualties, even when winning on the defense, because you're getting pounded by artillery, you're doing brutal trench fighting. Like the AI is occasionally dumb and will just let you one-sidedly slaughter them. But often the AI is I, I thought for as AIs go, it's like it's a low bar, was actually surprisingly competent in terms of suppressing my positions, blowing up my machine gun nests, and then attempting to bury me in bodies. Yeah. Well, and there's like sort of the uh, higher end siege stuff like, you know, siege artillery where, you know, later on in the game you can get, you know, multiple days of simulated siege artillery bombardment. And then there's undermining where you just basically blow a giant crater in the battlefield that nobody can build on anymore, um, which is sort of like a surefire way to if your enemy has like a really, really good trench network, you're like, all right, we're just going to. We're just going to dig under it and blow some charges and then uh, just run through the middle. Just run it straight down the middle like you're, uh, you know, you're in a football game or something. Um, it is I'm curious about the historicity of that <laughs> specific mechanic. Like, I mean, I know that there were uh, sappers and stuff, but I mean, it's it's pretty great. Like blowing up, like touching off that undermine charge and watching that huge earth explosion that just everything just goes is ejected straight into the air. Um, the British but, do it once. Um, okay. I'm trying to remember where. I mean, the issue is, of course, it took months to prepare. Um, but yeah, the British do this once. Um, mid to late war, as I recall, to open up for a, a, a new attack. And, and it does. It is successful. Um, it, it does work. I mean, like the downside is that, right, you need to tunnel for ages. And if your opponent is smart, um, they're going to figure out what you're doing pretty quickly. And it's not actually that hard to detect sappers. Um, so, um, so it, I mean, it was done. Um, I'm gonna, of course, now I'm going to have to go and look up and try and remember. Maybe, maybe, some, maybe some listener can tell us which battle it is that the British do it in, because I, I am just blanking. But yes, they, they, they do that. 
Yeah, you were also mentioning direct fire with light artillery, which is something that is like conspicuously missing unless I missed a technology for it or something. They've very much kind of divided it up between light artillery is used for suppression and heavy artillery is used for direct damage, particularly like taking out machine guns and mortar nests and sometimes enemy artillery, um, which is kind of interesting that there's not really I don't want to say there's not an offensive role for light artillery, but there's not like a direct damage dealing role for light artillery. Um, I don't know. Yeah, is the, well, like uh, like Brett was saying, I mean, it doesn't do the kind of damage to troops in the open that it probably should. Yeah. And 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 I think that they also they clearly wanted the heavy artillery, light artillery distinction um, because they also have to gesture at the fact that and this was true. Um, one of the major German advantages is that the Germans had more and better heavy artillery. Um, the Allies generally had more light artillery, and this was a war in which heavy artillery mattered more. Um, and so through 1914 and 15, even into 1916, um, both the French and the British are forever struggling with the fact of getting enough heavy guns and shells for them. Um, what they've done is kind of cut the distinction a little bit, perhaps differently than it would have been. The big distinction between heavy artillery and light artillery had to do with range um, and obviously the power of shell being delivered. So, um, you know, your classic light artillery is like your French 75, and these were generally direct fire artillery pieces. They're produced pre-war. The assumption is that they're going to be used in a war of maneuver. And so what you're going to be doing is you're going to be setting these up very quickly and firing on targets that the artillery can probably see. Um, so you're mostly firing at relatively low trajectories. Um, they can fire at higher trajectories, but the range is, is somewhat limited. Um, you know, heavy artillery is designed to fire at high trajectories. The shell falls on the target rather than, you know, shooting it like a bullet at the, I mean, all shells fall over distance, but much higher trajectories. Um, and with much heavier shells that can obviously do damage to guys in, in a trench and, you know, in practice, light artillery and its direct fire role proved to be extremely vulnerable on the World War I battlefield, and the increased range in it and, and blasting power of heavy artillery meant heavy guns could force light guns into silence. Um, the issue that they're running into is that just given how big they've decided to make their maps, um, and I mean, given how the game performs, I certainly don't want them to make the maps bigger. Um, <laughs> Uh, given how big they've decided to make their maps, right, light and heavy artillery have very similar ranges. When in practice, like heavy artillery should be like two or three maps behind where you're actually yeah. fighting. Um, and it should function more like the off-map siege artillery. And then light artillery is the only artillery that is close enough to be in a position where it could be, for instance, fired suppressively on, where the enemy could just and indeed, this was a standard. If you were launching an attack, one of the things that your pre-attack barrage needed to do was silence the enemy artillery um, so that they were not firing when you advanced. Uh, if the enemy artillery was functional when your guys went over the top, your attack was toast um, because you're going to get bursting shrapnel shells above your guys in the open like you're just done. Um, so that distinction, I, I see that they wanted to maintain the distinction. And and they've they've had to fudge the lines between the two artillery types to to make that distinction, um, which, you know, I get it. Game design at some point. 
Yeah, so that it's interesting because they have like three. They have like three different levels of trenches eventually that you can build. The fourth one is like a bunkhouse, which is like it's immune to everything and you can't shoot out of it for balance reasons. It's not possible to cut uh, firing positions in, in concrete in this universe. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, so so once they get up to those level three trenches and this is where I started get, getting really frustrated with my strategy or my my basically my, my tactical playbook, I guess you could call it, is that. Once they get up to those level three trenches, your standard like direct fire shells don't seem like they do much of anything at all. Um, and you can use airburst shells and also eventually gas shells, which are much more effective against those level three trenches. But they also cost like five to six times as much. And I'm curious if one were the best trenches in World War One able to withstand you know, direct artillery fire that well. And two, was it that much more expensive to make an airburst shell? Or is that more of a gameplay balance thing where they don't want you to just be able to win using airburst shells to clear out the trenches? So, yeah, airburst <laughs> shells should be like super common. Um, The idea of a defensive position that can't fire out and is immune to artillery. I mean, so in an actual trench network, what every trench would have is is a, a bunker or a dugout that was set deep enough that you hoped enemy artillery couldn't destroy it. And when the barrage starts, that's where you would run. And so they've kind of made that its own kind of trench. Um, you know, and so you're going to protect yourself from the enemy heavy bombardment with these sort of uh, super deep trenches. Um, in terms of like how hard it could be to get um, a... Uh, uh entrenched infantry out of position um uh 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 Stephen Biddle had a really good statistic in in a foreign affairs article years ago where he pointed out that the German barrage at the opening of the attack on Verdun um over the course of 2 days uh delivered about 1.2 kilotons of explosives onto the French position and then the German attack failed. Um, that is <laughs> the equivalent of a tactical nuclear device. Um, that's, just that sounds like a lot of my battles. Yeah, yeah. Assembled, <laughs> assembled through high explosives, um, and and you do, and that's not even like it's not the only answer. I mean, even as late as like even World War II, you have like there's a point at which I think I think it's the U U.S. Army Air Force uh, drops something like eight kilotons of explosives on a single German division. And it is still there in the morning. Um, and, and that is literally like, that's a nuclear yields worth of high explosives just assembled from non-nuclear explosives. So yeah, I mean, the idea that a really well dug in infantry, you can fling an absurd amount of explosives and those assholes can still be there when it's done. Um, and so, I mean, the fact that those trenches just become so resistant to artillery, yeah, they really were. Um, the defenders will take casualties. They'll take losses. Um, barrages over often, I mean, pre-battle barrages, it all happens in the game. Your pre-battle barrage is like you, you queue it up and then it just all happens at once when the battle starts. But in practice, these took days, sometimes weeks of barrages before the attack. Um, 
men went insane from the mental stress of it. Um, and then the attack failed, right? The defenders held and you're like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, Ian, I'm curious if you developed, did you develop like a similar strategy, uh, to, to like how I was kind of doing things where I would try to like basically destroy a position with artillery first or like what, especially later in the war, I'm curious what ended up being like your go-to for like, all right, I'm going to sweep this map. Here's how I'm going to do it. Um, gosh. Yeah. I, I don't think I never found myself, I don't know, comfortably in a, a strategy that, that I found was, uh, like reliably, like I, like I didn't have a build like that I would go to, um, so much. But I did find like as I was getting later into the war, I did find that you know supporting like m- tanks were uh, were huge mm-hmm. uh, because I find that they were the only thing that I could really use. Um, short of, well, the, the, like you like you said, Len, like that that. Eliminating trenches, you know, uh, trenches worth of infantry using heavy uh, artillery isn't really sustainable. Like you can't just, you know, clear everything out and, and march everybody in because you will inevitably run out of supply. But the the fact that tanks can actually fire at infantry in ta- in while they're in trenches, I relied a lot on that. Um, just because I I couldn't find I don't know I've always found it really frustrating to try to dislodge. Uh, um, any trench full of inventory, just, it feels so frustrating to get that done, which it should, but, um, but yeah, I, I tried, uh, I, I tried, uh, your method for a little while. Um, I definitely went with, uh, just sending waves of cheap troops, um, forward as often as I possibly could. And I think really what I, what I settled in on was, um, the, the kind of tactic that that Brett outlined earlier too, which was to just focus on one of the control points on the uh, usually on the side of the map when it was right. divided in half, and then to and then to sweep. Uh, that when I got sweeps, it was because it was laid out in a way that I could make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's definitely the way to do it. Yeah. There are certainly you can certainly get some maps where you're like it's like a four control point map, and the way they're nested, is you're like. Mm. No, no, I'm going to go for a minor victory here and then call it a day. And then I'm going to choose a different axis of advance on the campaign map. I'm not coming back here. I have one more. I hate those split maps. Yeah, or especially even even some of the ones that have three control points, but the middle one is set back from the two forward ones. Mm -hmm. So you can't really, I mean, you can kind of flank it if you run up the side of the map and then, you know, make a hard right. But um, I had the AI is savvy enough to cheese that way, by the way. It does. I've yeah. Had a couple times oh, where yeah. It'll, it, it, it paraded about 10 companies worth of like just almost it, to me in my memory anyway. It was like they had a, a procession of like yes. one column, like one man column uh, just parading along the very extreme edge of the map until they got to the to, to my side and then filed in. And flooded me from behind they'll, my own position. They'll do that with forests too. Like if you're like, oh, I don't need to leave defenders back near my command trench, and there's like a line of forest that cuts through your trench network, they'll run guys through there. Yep. 
concealed yeah. and then just take your command trench. Like they can get pretty tricky with stuff like that. Yeah. I kind of like uh, that about the AI because it, I mean, it forces you to be honest, right? Your defense mm-hmm. line needs to extend all the way to, to the edge of the map. If it really does. If they're, and, and if you're not doing that, then you need trenches, manned trenches facing the edge of the map. And, mm-hmm. and you need to think if there is like, yeah, if there's like that, you know, there, there's the one map that is, um, your control points and their control points are like a pair of interlocking L's and it's got a stretch mm-hmm. of unbuildable terrain down the center as well as as splitting and you yeah. you need to think you need like I need machine gun nests on both sides of that center area so that they overlap in the middle so that they can't just sneak some guys through but like just sneaking some guys through is a regular practice like this is the trench raid in 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 World War 1 everybody remembers the really big assaults but one of the things you did in in World War 1 is you would um you'd get orders to do a a trench raid to get prisoners and intelligence and also just to keep troops active and murdering other human beings um and so what what that would mean is that you'd creep out of your trenches under the cover of darkness you would crawl across no man's land under the cover of darkness and then right at dawn as the sun's coming up you would attack the enemy trench from like right next to it you'd run in really quickly grenade and bayonet everybody you could find grab a few prisoners for intelligence and then hightail it back to your trench it was a trench raid. And this was just something that was happening continuously along the front line, which was part of the terror of being rotated into the forward trenches because the trench networks were usually in multiple lines. Like if you were actually in the front of the front line, you're like, any minute now, some company of infantry we didn't see sneaking across no man's land could come piling into our trench and murder us all in our sleep. Um like that's part of the sort of continuous mental stress. So the fact that the AI like cheekily sneaks dudes through holes in your lines and so on, I'm like, yeah, fair. Yeah. I should have defended there. And this is how, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is how Firewatch was invented. I imagine. <laughs> well, I had, I had one more tactical question before we get to like the campaign stuff uh, and like kind of the interesting economics of it. Um, so late in the game, the central powers get stormtroopers. The allies have like an equivalent that's like a flamethrower unit. I want to know, is my understanding of these units, which I will admit is kind of like a Dan Carlinized pop history understanding. But like my understanding of the German stormtroopers in World War One is that they kind of invented modern infantry tactics with, you know, suppressing fire and cover and they revolutionized how infantry were used on the battlefield, which isn't something I felt like was really reflected. They have a little bit more defense when they're covering open ground. Um, But like as far as like suppressing guys in the trenches as they move up, didn't seem like something they could do. Um, is, Is my idea of how these units worked completely wrong because I've bought into like a romanticized idea of them? Or is it this this game doesn't really accurately represent how they fought so you're not you're not wrong um i would i would say that recent scholarship has has somewhat pushed back on on the image you're presenting 
Um, in particular, that the Germans uniquely were pioneering these techniques. I think some recent World War I scholars have tended to push back and say, actually, you can see these tactics emerging almost simultaneously in the French, British, and German armies. Though the Germans are probably the first to win great success by putting everything together. Um, and yeah, what the what your what your stormtroopers are doing, um, they're they're trained first to um, follow the rolling barrage very closely. Um, most infantry, the way they would attack is they would wait until the rolling barrage was past their position by some distance and then advance out of their trenches. Your stormtroopers were trained to charge into the shell holes. Um, the thinking being, if one of your shells has just exploded there, it's a rolling barrage that is extending the range with every shot. So the one place you can be sure isn't going to be shelled is the one place that just has been. Uh, that requires a different mentality about life to run into the exploding <laughs> shell. Um, but it is, in fact, the way to do it. Um, but they were also prepared, like they studied maps of the enemy trench network. They often practiced with mock-ups of enemy trenches. And the key thing is that they were trained to bypass enemy strong points and just keep moving, right? The regular infantry is coming behind you to mop up, so you're just going to move through. I don't know how you would systematize that fully in a real-time strategy game um, where, you know, it's the player who's making the decision. Like, I quickly learned, even with regular infantry, right? Get one of your infantry units, however, beat up in melee in every single trench, and now the enemy can't shoot back. And now you can mm. bring in your mass of dudes to mop up. Like, this is how stormtroopers work. But you can do that with regular infantry. Um, I do... I do find it a little weird, both in this game and also in the recent All Quiet on the Western Front movie, that we're getting a lot of like, ah, yes, and flamethrowers is what the Allies did. The flamethrower <laughs> was invented by the Germans. What's going on? I don't like, yes, yes. By the end of the war, the Allies had more flamethrowers. By the end of the war, the Allies had more of everything. Germany built a grand total of seven tanks in World War I. Um, you know, this was the impact of the British blockade, but the, the flamethrower was invented by the central powers. Why don't they get a flamethrower <laughs> unit? Which is, it's interesting that they only built seven tanks because you have to fight four of those seven in the, uh, right, the, right. Con the continue uh, <laughs> historical scenario for the Americans. Um, well, to yeah. be fair, the, the Germans end up, most German tanks by far in the war were captured and repurposed allied tanks um the, what is it a7a german tanks he's functional like the one they actually built he's functionally no action the issue was shortage of steel hmm. um germany was desperately short on just about everything through the war but they were short on steel whereas you know the british were importing it all from the united states so they could build as many tanks as they liked um, see our previous discussion on Victoria three. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> it comes together. So, yeah. It's the same, the same panel too. Um, so talking about the campaign, uh, I know we, we spent a lot of time on the tactical side, uh, but I do want to kind of dig in to, um, I guess the first question I would ask Ian, did you ever get anywhere close to the enemy capital as either side? Oh, uh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I played as the allies for most of the time, and and yeah, I, I yeah, because you can. I made, you, I made a, <laughs> I made as good a go as I could, but no, I I was never in striking distance. Yeah, like you can win by taking Paris or, 
Oh, it's not Kreisau. What's the German? Because the map doesn't go all the way to Berlin, obviously. But no. uh, um, but uh, yeah, I can't remember. But it's yeah. yeah. But the the general way you win, I guess, is by depleting your enemy's national will. And the two things I find really interesting are one, manpower is not really a consideration. Uh, casualties will subtract from your national will, so you want to be inflicting more casualties than you are taking in an average battle if you want to be moving that ticker in your direction. And then you also have to pay from your cash reserves to replenish infantry that have died, but you will never build new infantry units and infantry units can never just be gone from the map. They can be depleted and, you know, pushed back. But then as long as you have money, they're going to fill back up again. So other than some technologies later down the line that like give you more infantry companies, um, the number of actual strategic units fighting on both sides never actually changes. So it becomes purely a war about money, supplies and national will, um, which I thought was a really interesting way to set up the campaign. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it certainly, I think, focuses you on the attritional aspect in a sort of different way than, you know, attempting to break an opponent's manpower and like EU4 does. Um, the one thing, as you say, is that right apart from some texts that unlock additional units and like very rarely, it seems like you get, you might get a few more units from an event or something. Um, you're kind of, you're, you're working with the divisions you have which actually struck me as a little odd. And, and this is something that I think, uh, you know, I think the game does so many things well. One of the things I think it doesn't do quite well is it, is it doesn't capture the ebb and flow of this theater over the years very well. That like 1917 and 1918 were like very different years um, in terms of, and I, I mean, even early 1918 was very different than, than mid-1918. Um, because you actually do get right the initiative over the over the war it shifts in like significant and dramatic ways um that you know in you know we begin right after the end of the race to the sea and like at that point um you know the british have the what's left of the bef but it's going to be almost a full year before kitchener's new army is going to show up and so you should have relatively few British units. They should all be elite units, but relatively few. And the French are left like just manage. Um, and then as we get into into nineteen, you know, fifteen is when we should get an almost flood of new British units. And then, mm -hmm. uh, ironically, while the German player should be having his units siphoned off of the front to to fuel the Eastern strategy, and then. The reverse should be happening in, in 1917, right? As Russia collapses, this frees up an enormous number of German soldiers in the East. And so by early 1918, the German player should have marked numerical superiority to play with. Here is your last chance to make it happen before the Americans show up. And that sort of ebb and flow um, doesn't happen. You're not getting messages like... Churchill's a moron, so three of your best units are going to Gallipoli <laughs> by. Um, like, that was what you had to, to deal with. I mean, this was, um, um, you know, I think France is the only power on the Western Front 
that remains singularly committed to the Western Front from the beginning of the war to the end. Um, and that's obviously because the Western Front is, as players will immediately realize looking at the map, primarily in France. Um, so, you know, the French had no illusions about where the war was going to be won. Um, but the British tried opening all sorts of theaters and siphoned away supplies and troops for that. The Germans obviously went east um, and tried things out there um, to variable success, less early in the war, more later in the war. And that kind of ebb and flow doesn't, doesn't really show up in your experience um, very much. And I kind of wish it, it would have. Um, it would have forced you to sort of, I was planning on going on the offensive, but I now have seven less divisions than I thought I would. Or core, I think it breaks them into core. So I have like three less core, and so I just can't amass enough troops to make an offensive at any point. I have to sit tight and wait. I do yeah. get though that like having you know kind of world events going on that way can feel. Well, I mean, just add to the pile of things that kind of feel bad about the conflict as it is. Right. Um, since yeah, that, that just does make planning. I mean, if you know it's coming, that's that's one thing. But if, like as a new player coming in and playing the campaign for the first time and realizing, oh, wait, they're just going to take half my guys away. Yeah, it should that, warn you a few months in advance, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that um, would be a bummer. But um, the other thing that I have to admit on the campaign map that, that struck me is that you can position and launch, position supply and launch an offensive a lot faster and a lot more casually than you actually could in the first world war like there there is a real rhythm to the planning of the western front in in world war 1 that as you would get into winter um you know the both political and military leaders of you know France and Britain would sit down um they would be trying to coordinate with other fronts and they would hash out like here is our plans for the spring this is where we're going to strike. And then they would spend the whole winter. You're building up ammo depots. You're moving guys into position. And you would usually, you'd have one or maybe two big operations in a year. Um, you might do one in spring and then one in late summer. Um, attacking in winter was not a good idea. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it turns out. The, the, game, the game does do some of that to you because rain and snow actually both kind of yeah. favor the defender a lot because they oh, yeah. impure artillery. So you shouldn't attack in bad weather, which thumbs up. Good. Um, the British learned that at the Somme. Um, <laughs> but like that rhythm isn't quite there. You're much more able to be responsive and reactive in a very kind of quick way um, that, that isn't there. Um, you know, I, whereas, whereas historically, right? Like there was this effort beginning really in, in 1915, um, but especially in 1916, there's this real effort. Um, uh, Joseph Joffre, the, um, initially the French high commander before he is sacked out of his command or realizing how the war was going to go, um, <laughs> devises what he calls a strategy of rupture, where his plan was to have the Italians who just entered the war. We're going to have the Italians, the British and the French on the Western Front and the Russians, and we're all going to have offenses at the same time on the assumption that the Germans can't possibly reinforce against all of us. Um, and um, like nothing about that plan actually goes to plan. The Germans launch an offensive on the Western Front at Verdun, which they weren't expecting. Like 
the Russians trip over their feet and explode uh, inexplicably. The Italian offensive, uh, like the other 11 Italian offensives, is a failure train disaster. Um, please read my blog post on why Luigi Cadorna is the worst general in World War I. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I look forward, by the way, to the sequel, The Great War Italian Front, where it's just... Yeah. It's 11 historical battles, no campaign, just 11 historical battles, and they're all exactly the same. Yeah, um, I was thinking about that, like, and you have to decide when to switch sides, like, that's a big point right, in the right. campaign. Like, uh, yeah, you have to pick, see how it's going and pick the optimal moment. Um, and then because yeah. you're Italian, misjudge the optimal <sighs> moment and uh, everything goes badly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, like, they were coordinating, and and you don't quite get that. You're not spending like I am spending three turns getting ready for my big effort on this spot, um, and then I'm going to launch it. And you don't really do that. You do have to build up supplies. You have to think about the supplies available. You have to move your units. Once you get heavy artillery and, and aircraft, right, you're really you're moving your attack force into position, and you want to use counter intel because the AI is at least smart enough to realize when you've stacked twelve. Infantry Corps, two sets of planes and some siege artillery opposite one of their hexes, you're probably going to attack it. Um, and they'll reinforce. So you you can use counter intel to, I guess, keep them from seeing that. Um, but there isn't that quite that long run-up to a big offensive that was a major part of World War One. It also explains why the generals in World War One were so reluctant to recognize when their offensive was not achieving results. It's like, yeah, this guy has spent six months. Like, this is it. He can't say, well, that didn't work and try somewhere else. Like, this is his attack this year. Uh, he's going to he's gonna try and make it work. Um, you know, obviously, and not succeed because it's World War I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, for, for career yeah, reasons, like, yeah, this is happening now. Anyway, anyway but yeah no i was gonna ask ian if you had the same experience i didn't quite have like 11 different battles in the same spot but one of the things that i think is is where some of that historical tension of you know portraying it authentically makes it sort of a worse video game is that um you know every space on the map has these command stars as we mentioned at the beginning and uh you only remove a command star if you get like an overwhelming tactical victory. Anything less than that is like it's going to be a change in the balance of national will, but you're not going to actually take any ground. Um, and some yeah, of those, it's, 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 it's effectively a stalemate. And some of those spaces have like four. I think the capitals might even have five command stars. So you can have a, a sweep, like a complete sweep, like we demolished them. They had no chance and it's like, all right, now you got to now we're resetting, uh, you know, it's first and 10 and you got to do that three more times <laughs> on the same map yeah. with like the same trenches and stuff, uh, which that just felt bad to me. I don't know. Did you have a similar experience? I I did. And I mean, you do wind up. I think you one thing that does kind of commit you to an attack in, a, in an abstract way, the way that, that Brett was ex explaining is. Not only do you have to do those um, three overwhelmingly uh, successful attacks, um, you have to do them in a row. Yep. Because if you don't mm -hmm. attack um, the territory in a turn, 
uh, a, a lost command star will be regenerated. Right. You at least have to keep right? attacking. So, as long as you attack, you have to it, keep it attacking. Yeah. Yeah. So. so right. Yeah. If, if you do attack, it won't regenerate. But you can't like break off the attack and uh-huh. you're going to you're committing to it for the duration if you're if you plan on. Um, and so that that I found was a little bit paralyzing. <laughs> well, I, I think more and more, I just feel like I was playing it wrong. Uh, and that I was looking around, like, uh, I guess, you know, I'm looking at a hex war game map for the campaign. Um, and so I started playing it the way that I would play like a world war two war game, like, uh, uh, war in the East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not really what this game wants you to do. I don't think like in, in war in the East two, for instance, what you're trying to do is punch through, create a salient and, um, and ho- hopefully encircle, you know, territory held by the enemy. Right. Um, that, that's, that's really not the, the goal here at all. Um, you're trying to push the, the, you know, you're, you, you are trying to push into enemy territory if possible, but, but I do, I guess, I don't know this, all the, the the slog (laughs) of it was having having damage on my own personal morale as a player. uh, And I'm as much as it was on, I'm sure that's why it's designed that way because yeah, if it was, you could sweep a map in one battle. I would have been doing these giant World War II encirclements like that. That's what would have made sense if they gave you the ability to do that. And then it wouldn't it wouldn't play out like yeah. the Western Front, really. Um, so, yeah, it's like I think I wrote in my review. I would rather have this game than a game that transforms the conflict so fundamentally just for ease of gameplay that it doesn't even have the like world war one flavor to it. Like I'm, I gave it a seven, which some people are like, Oh, you really didn't like it. I'm like, no, I did. Like, I am actually glad this game exists. It's just, I don't, I don't know if you can overcome those tensions necessarily. That I wound up giving it a six and it was basically the same thing. Like I, like I, let me just find it. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> really quick, because the, the last line in it was, uh, um, it, it, let's see here. Yeah. Um, the final line was, uh, for players who are interested in, or extremely interested in World War One, the Great War Western Front has some compelling ideas. And I think it's a valuable lesson in the nature of that war on both the tactical and strategic levels. The trouble for me, however, is that none of that adds up to a game that's a joy to play. And perhaps that's as it should be. Um, yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Like it, the uh, the 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 fact that this is kind of miserable to to play uh, is thematically appropriate. And I don't know that it would be good to have a really super fun, shooty World War One strategy game like this shouldn't feel like Starcraft at all. And it doesn't. It just. Yeah, I don't I don't know how to turn that into a game that I would recommend for anybody. I, you know, uh, I go back to, obviously I, I didn't review it. I just played it. Um, but <laughs> I mean, I came away. I, I feel like this game will appeal to some people. Um, for but sure. yeah, I think it's going to be a niche title. I'm glad it exists. Like, I don't know that this is the ultimate form of the world war one real time strategy game. Um, but I don't know. I'm gl- I'm glad it exists, and I'd be interested to see what what a future developer might innovate on in this 
Um, I, I don't imagine we'll get a the Western Front two. I mean, who knows? Maybe we will. Um, but like, I would be really interested to see what someone would do with this. I mean, the issue is there just there aren't that many World War One games. Full stop. And right. so, just to get developers, strategy game developers, sort of thinking, what does a what would a World War One game be like? How would I capture? these interactions and make them interesting in a strategy context i'm like okay uh maybe we can we can get some some progress here since i mean like frankly like world war ii is is done to death and mm-hmm. there are a bunch of like you know whether you're you're off with hearts of iron or company of heroes right like the world war ii experience you want is there for you um but but you know i mean i I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. I don't know. I I feel like I feel like if I'm giving it a number, I'm I'm probably higher than you. I'm like a seven and a half, eight. Like it succeeds at what it attempts to do. Um, it's I just that right. it's just that what it attempts to do, I think, isn't going to appeal to everybody. But I think I think there are people for whom this is going to be their jam. Um, and you know, for the for the for the rest, um, uh, Company of Heroes three just came out. <laughs> Yeah, right. And like and you've learned <laughs> World War One. Not a very fun experience. Uh yeah, I want that's I want to put this on the record right now that the six that I gave the Great War Western Front is really as much for World War One the conflict as it is for the right. game. Yeah, like, yeah. World I don't War One. Not, it's not recommended. I kind of <laughs> yeah. give World War One uh, I I would give it a one, you know, out of ten. Yeah, and, and yeah. Um yeah, uh so Brad, really, I know really you, bad Google review for World War One. I. I just it didn't, uh, oh, didn't, I, didn't gel I, with me. Accommodations terrible. Thumbs down. This I is the get, worst. I want the yeah. VRBO I've ever been at. <laughs> I want I want the Great War Eastern Front next, where the whole point is just to smuggle Lenin back into the country, so he'll start a revolution, and then you won't have to fight on that the Eastern Front yeah. anymore. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the fun <laughs> part, of course, about the Eastern Front is that it would. Man, the Eastern Front would be a design challenge because it's much more mobile. The armies aren't large enough to completely fill the space. The trench stalemate asserts itself in certain areas, but then you also have areas of open maneuver. That would be wild to try and design. Um, so I hope they try yeah. it. Yeah. So I know, Brad, on, on your blog, you talk a lot about how, you know, these games could be looked at from a history education standpoint. Is there anything in particular you feel great war Western front would be good at demonstrating to like a student of the first world war? I mean, I think just the, I think it does a good job of introducing some of the actual problems of trench warfare, as opposed to the sort of the Hollywood vision where the issue is that the moment you try and cross no man's land, everybody gets shot. Whereas, like, you're actually looking at, like, okay, I need to use artillery, but artillery is supply intensive. I only have so many barrages before I'm out of shells. And if if you get halfway to the enemy's command trench with your barrages, but not all the way, they're just going to counterattack you right out of those positions. Um, I think some of that could be made stronger by, for instance, one-directional firing trenches. Um, but... But I think I think it does express some actually some elements of 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 World War One combat fairly fairly well. I also um, I think they did a good job with there aren't a lot of them, but the little framing cutscenes that kind of describe the war are mm-hmm. 
you know, I mean, they're not they're not necessarily perfect, but they're all right. They did they did they did an okay job. I think this is a game that uses its setting well and shows a I think a real effort to try and express some real things about the war. Oh, and just actually, no, one final note that it teaches really, really well. It has been fascinating to watch the forums, to watch the players discover the, like, to watch them slowly work themselves through the logic that leads to the most developed late war trench defenses with like, okay, I have advanced trench positions that I expect to lose that are thinly held, but they're there to inflict casualties. And my really heavy defenses are on the second line. The first line and the second line shouldn't be connected with communication trenches because then the enemy can just use those to get to me. But the second line and my reserve positions in the rear do need communications trenches. And I'm like, congratulations, you have rediscovered the Hindenburg <laughs> really cool. line. Yeah. You have, you've, you've worked your way through it. And the game does that really well. Now, me being the history nerd I am, I was designing my trenches that way from the start. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, you know, so that was sort of, I feel like to some degree, like, I mean, it sounds like I've had a little more luck on both the offensive and the defensive than you guys. And I feel like some of that is just like, I mean, I've sort of like I, I hacked this game by coming from the future. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I know how this works. Well, I I, I've loved I think that's seeing, like a, that's that's yeah. the highest praise you can give a, a something like this is where it mechanically produces the kinds yeah. of behavior. That yes, really exactly. People are that. Yeah. So that's that's amazing to me. And I, I really don't think that there's anything I could say that would be like like a better recommendation for a game period like that. That's that's the yeah. If you've if you've done that, you've achieved something special, I think. Yeah. And I, and I think it did. Like I said, like I especially like I was drawing on my knowledge of like trench fortification systems and like, yeah, it works because the enemy takes those lead trenches but they're not connected to anything, so they have to get out of those lead trenches to attack again. That's murderous. And then you counterattack across this short, easily controlled distance. You retake your, your lead trenches and reset the battlefield. And I'm like, yeah, this is how you do it. I wish they could get the AI to do that a little more effectively, like tune the way the AI designs its trench networks a little bit, um, especially in the late war, but... But it, uh, yeah, if players are players are discovering discovering that sort of um, those sorts of interactions, right? I mean, it's the same as like players in Victoria Three discovering late nineteenth century political economies. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, this game has managed managed something. I need to try that because I I've all, I've just been I'm gonna make one super rigid like deadly line of trenches and then all they have to do is like drop smoke and rush it in one spot and i'm screwed uh <laughs> so. i gotta i gotta send you yeah. gotta send you some screenshots man as to how yeah, you how yeah, you get this done them. i'm I furiously will, taking notes I would, yeah yeah i would i would love to see how you set up your trenches but uh uh i know it hasn't been that long since we talked to you and you were talking about greek city states last time is there anything else you want to plug blog wise or article uh, wise well, I was in the New York Times, um, yeah. so I should probably I should probably <laughs> holler out that my my creed on on saving the humanities in the New York Times. Go read that. We're still working our way through Greek city states on the on the blog. Um, I've got a couple of podcasts coming out here soon. If you're a Tolkien fan, um, which may intersect with World War One fans to a degree here, 
um, mm-hmm. given his involvement. Um, I'm also Tolkien got did. some, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've also got some uh, appearances on the Tolkien-oriented Prancing Pony podcast. Um, a couple a few weeks ago, and then I have a few more coming up because they're getting into all the battles in uh, in Return of the King, and so you know I'm their historical consult too. Um, <laughs> you have to share, Len. Um, it's okay. It's all right. We we you know we didn't sign an exclusivity deal or anything, so yeah. <laughs> um, maybe if lots of people lots of people go subscribe to our Patreon, maybe <laughs> we can bring Brad on full time as uh, yeah. Um, Ian, uh, your review, if, if you guys want to read more of, of Ian's thoughts on this game is up, anything else you think three MA listeners would want to check out over on the day job side? Oh, well, uh, head over to uh taptap.io. Um, that's a, uh, social games platform that I'm working with now. <clears throat> um, it's, uh, that's, that's where you can find, uh, my writing, but, but I mean, I'll post that stuff to Twitter. So if you want to find me at iBoudreau on Twitter, then, uh, you can, well, for as yeah. long as that site lasts. Right, uh, yeah. If, right. if, if you it's, can if find it's here. anything on Twitter. Noted, <laughs> noted Twitter, Twitter user, Ian Noted Boudreau. Twitter user, yeah. yeah. Of course. Um, yeah, uh, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can head over to idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. I think 3MA.net also works. I think Rob registered that at some point, and I just didn't find out about it until recently. Uh, we have some forums over there, uh, other podcasts, um, including uh, Soren Johnson, uh, who might be coming back to this show uh, in the not so distant future. Um, we're supported by listeners just like you on Patreon, patreon.com slash 3MA. Or if you didn't hear, we have a bunch of new tiers uh, that went into effect last month. Um, we've got some really cool bonus shows planned and, uh, yeah, if we make enough money, we can just, we, we just hire everybody. Uh, but that's, we're, we're going to need to, we're going to need to get pretty far from where we are right now. So, uh, head on over there. Uh, we always appreciate your support. Uh, it's the only reason we can keep doing this, uh, especially to our Patreon producer tier, the hackers, including Mark M and Bucktown, the party whip of 3MA multiplayer RTS sessions. Um, maybe we'll do some multiplayer Great War at some point uh, <laughs> just to see see how overpowered maybe Brett's trenches are against an actual human player. Um, and uh, 3MA on Twitter, again, um, could go any day now. So get on there and follow us while you still can. You can tell your grandkids that you... Followed 3MA on Twitter before it collapsed into a burning pile of into a, into a shell crater. There we go. Let's tie it back. Um, yeah, we'll be back uh, probably next week with another episode. Actually, yes, it will be next week. And uh, it's going to be featuring some big name game designers that I think you will all be excited about. And uh, yeah, <laughs> until then, uh, for Ian and for Brett, this is Len saying goodnight.